you are new around here, we are preaching through the book of John. We've been in the book of John for a while. And to get us where we're heading here today, let me, uh, let me just ask you a question. Has your pride ever kept you from something really good for you? Show of hands. Should be everybody. Come on. If not, your pride is keeping you from... Nah. <laughs> so there, case in point, right? No. Yes, all of us, right? At one point, our pride has kept us from something that was actually really good for us. Um, so I used to have a really nice, well, it was old, but I liked it, a, a, a dot, you know, like a jacked up cool truck, right? And uh, when, I was, when I was younger, and I remember I made fun of people driving minivans. Anybody else out there? I know. You're out there. And I was like, ah, minivans, right? And then... And then I got married and had a kid. And a friend of ours, we needed a new car, and uh, we didn't have a lot of money at the time. And a friend of ours uh, gave us, basically gave us this van. I mean, gave us such a screaming deal. You know, it was like, you can't say no. And it was a minivan. And my wife came home and told me, I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding, right? And so we ended up like taking this minivan. And uh, I know some, some of you are like identifying with this, right? Uh, you feel the pain here, right? So <laughs> we took this, and uh, I, I remember getting in there and driving it and being like, hmm, this kind of has a nice ride. <laughs> kind of smooth, you know? And then the amazing thing is when you need to put your kid in, instead of having to, like, lean over the back seat and all that, you just, like, boop, right? And it's amazing. And so I had to admit... <laughs> that the thing I made fun of and had too much pride for is actually pretty good for me in that situation. So anybody else feel my pain? That, yeah, okay, a few of you. Now, it was funny yesterday as I was like trying to think of something, I'm like, honey, I asked my wife, I'm like, can you think of anything, anytime where my pride has kept me from something good? And she's like, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and then she said, how about uh, getting a cat? And I'm like, nope, we're not going there. I'm going to hang on to that. So anyway, but I imagine we've all had instances in life where our pride has, has led us in a direction that we truly regret. Maybe that's uh, broken relationships in our life. We wouldn't admit we were wrong. We refused to let go of bitterness. We were in the right, and we hung on to it. And because of that, we ended up losing a relationship. Maybe it's, it was a missed opportunity. We wouldn't accept help. We, we tried to do it on our own. We refused to stop and ask for direction, G guys, right? It's usually a guy thing. Although now with smartphones, it's great. We never have to, like, humble ourselves and roll down the window. It just leads us right there. Um, or maybe you were too good to, op to take an opportunity that, that you felt like was beneath you. This is a big deal, especially younger men in the room. Remember this. And you look at a buddy now, maybe a little later in life, and, and they just took the opportunity that came, and uh, it's, they just, they've gone so much further. Maybe you missed an opportunity because of pride. Maybe you are experiencing some, some real pain in your life because of pride. You refused to let go of a selfish agenda you had, or you refused to listen to good advice and just kept going down the path that you know wasn't wise or what God was leading you into, but by golly, you were going to change him or you were going to be the exception to the rule or you were going to make something out of the situation. 
I remember a relationship years and years ago with a good friend and, and, and watching her walk down this road and everybody kind of around was going, really? You're going to pursue this? Really? And sure enough, led to heartache, not too far down the road. Now today what we're going to look at is a passage where Jesus will present us with an opportunity to either hang on to our pride and continue down the road that we're on, or choose a, a better way, a counterintuitive way that will actually lead to life. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn on over to John chapter 13. And as we head into John chapter 13, uh, the, the, we, we've gone through the first half of the book of John. Scholars have coined that the, the book of signs because the whole first half of the book of John is these amer- amazing signs pointing to who Jesus is, pointing to the identity of Jesus, God in the flesh, and the claims of Jesus that he makes over and over again of being God in the flesh. And now as we move into the second half of the book of John, scholars for centuries have called these last nine chapters of the book of John the book of glory. And beginning in this, in this text, we, we're going to learn why. It's the last night of Jesus' earthly ministry leading up to the cross. It's the beginning of one of the most intimate conversations in all of the Gospels where Jesus communicates some of the most critical truth to his disciples in his last moments, like the stuff he really wants to communicate. The crowds are gone. The crowds are gone. The public ministry side is is gone. And now Jesus is alone in a room with the 12 who have been closest to him, the men who have been with him now for three years. And in verse one of chapter one, John starts like this. He says, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so he sets up this this next section of the the book, his account of Jesus' life, by saying it's Passover. And as we know, as we've been seeing all along, when John talks about a Jewish festival, Jesus is going to take that and show how it's all been pointing to him all along. And, And it says Jesus knew the hour had come for him. To, to leave this world. And he's not just speaking of his, his death, but his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the rest of this journey on earth as he would complete the work, as he would be glorified. We'll see this terminology later in the chapter, as he would ta- be glorified in being lifted up on the cross and then being raised out of the grave and ascending back to the side of the Father. And, and what we see in the midst of this You remember, John starts his book out by telling us the word became flesh. In the beginning was the word. Speaking of Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It tells us that everything was created through him. The creator of the universe took on flesh and blood and walked among us and showed us the glory of God. Brought light into the darkness. It's hard for us to comprehend God the Son, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the three in one. It's a, it's a hard concept. But the always existing creator God took on flesh, came to this world, and dwelt among us. And in the midst of that, we see his motivation right from the very beginning. It says, he loved his own. 
who were in this world. And he loved them to the end, or literally, he loved them in the Greek to the uttermost. And what he's about ready to do in the, in, in the symbol we're going to see here in a moment, but even more so in what's going to happen the following day, will illustrate how much he loves each one of us. And, and, and this points to this incredible truth as we begin this, it is that we're called to both, to both try to comprehend this awesome creator, God, who created a universe so vast we can't even comprehend and holds it together. And yet, he feels, he cares for us. He loves us. He goes on to say in verse 2, the evening meal was in progress, the Passover meal. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Tuck that away. The devil's already planted, it's whispered in his ear, planted in his imagination to, to betray Jesus. It says Jesus knew. Now listen to this. Don't miss this because it's so... It, it, listen to this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So what do you think comes next? All authority, all power. In fact, in Matthew at the Great Commission, we see Jesus speak to his disciples and recognize all authority has been given to me. And here it says Jesus recognizes the incredible amount that the Father has put all things under his power. That's, a, that's, power, that's real power. That's real authority. And so what would you expect? I mean, I think I would expect like, like Olympics, like a powerful, you know, he knows tomorrow's game day. And so I would kind of expect like, you know, anybody remember Michael Phelps, swimmer, Olympics, you know, you put on the headphones, kind of get all amped up. He kind of in his own little world, you know. So I kind of, if I would picture like, you know, Jesus is kind of trying to get pumped up for the next day. And he's like, okay, um, Peter, James, can you guys bring me some food over here? I'm going to hang out over here away from all these other guys. All you other guys, why don't you just bow down and worship me for a while over, over here in the corner. And Judas, because he, he knows he knows Judas. We see that in chapter 6. He knows Judas will betray him. Get out of here, you loser. I don't want you here right now. That's kind of like how I would see where the so was going. That's not where the so is going. He knows the Father had put all things under his power. So, verse 4, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now you, if you grew up in church, which I know a lot of you did, um, you know where the whole story's going, and I think we lose the impact of it because we know where it's going. Just how shocking that is. Instead of the God of the universe powering up all authority, all power been placed under him, he, he powers down. He takes on the appearance of a servant. Literally, as he takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, this is how a, a servant in the household would be. And then he does something that's so shocking 
that is hard for us to comprehend because we live in a society where you know equality is such a huge value and they lived in a in a society of hierarchy where someone who was in a lower position uh, would serve someone in a higher position and you did not cross these boundaries and all of a sudden Jesus the Lord the master takes up the basin and the towel and he bends down and he washes the feet of his disciples. This is something only the lowliest servant in the culture would do. In the few times you, you, you see this elsewhere, it's only like, you know, may, maybe a child washing the feet of their parent or, um, you know, a disciple of their teacher. It's, it's, it's such an act of devotion. In fact, that's what made Mary's act so such an act of love and devotion. Remember, the two most important foot washings in history happened just a few pages away from each other. As Mary anoints Jesus with the perfume and wipes his feet with her hair as an act of love and an act of devotion. In ancient Jewish literature, there's, a, there's basically a love story where, where this wife is like, I'm going to wash the feet of my husband. And he's like, no way, only the slaves do that. And she's like, I'm not letting another woman wash your feet. And it's this act of love and devotion, and it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. See, but what's happening here is a deeper thing. Um, Jesus isn't simply giving them a lesson on just humility and service. That'll come a little bit later. That's there. But he's doing something, actually, that's a symbol of a much greater act of sacrifice that he's about to make only hours from now, truly laying down his life. And so he takes, off, he, he takes off his outer garments and dresses like a servant, a symbol of something that a much deeper heavenly reality that Paul writes about in Philippians when he says, have this attitude in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. And therefore, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow on heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this symbol that he does here it represents a much deeper spiritual reality that's about to happen. And this was truly a shocking event. I mean, imagine if you showed up at, like, you, you know, the, the company flew you out to Denver for the, you know, the national or regional, and, and like the CEO of the corporation, you're gathered around the boardroom table, and you're like a middle manager, and you're there to report on, on your area and provide a different perspective, and all of a sudden the CEO um, gets down, <laughs> takes up a towel, and starts washing your feet. I mean, even in our culture, that's shocking, isn't it? That's what's going on here. And Peter, so Peter, I love Peter, because he just does it the way he sees it, right? When, when Jesus gets to Peter, he's like going around washing the feet, and everybody's just like in, in shock. And it says, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? 
Like, what in the world's happening here? This can't happen. And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. See, none of the disciples got this until after Jesus' death and resurrection. They didn't understand it. They didn't understand the deeper thing that Jesus was doing here. And Peter replies back, no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And this little Greek word part, um, when used in the, uh, one of the ancient Greek translations of the Bible, was used about like the land and inheritance. And so Peter's like, I don't get any? All right. And I love it, his reaction. As you see his reaction, he's going to say, like, wash all of me, right? But there's a deeper thing going on before we move on. They don't get it. They don't understand the deeper picture. And Jesus in the midst of this is saying, I know this is shocking. I know you don't understand this, but here's what I need you to do, Peter. I need you to trust me. And a spiritual principle I've seen in life over and over again is that greater revelation only comes with obedience. And this is, this is so the opposite of what we want in our Christian life. We want more information so then we can choose if we're going to obey or not, right? When God calls us into something, when God calls us to take a step of faith, when he calls us into a step of obedience, it's like, yeah, I kind of need to know a little more information. Not the way it works. The way it works is God calls, and we step in and out of obedience, and then afterwards we understand. You almost never get the whole picture ahead of time. It's just not the way I've seen God move and he, he, he looks at Peter and he says, trust me. Uh, this week, my son had a birthday. And uh, he, he had like, we did like the big family birthday a few days earlier. And so he wasn't really expecting anything on his actual birthday. It was a school day, you know. And, uh, and so I planned this little surprise thing for him. And uh, kind of teamed up with, you know, a good buddy. And I told him earlier that day, I'm heading into the office. I'm like, okay, I want you to be dressed, showered, because he's a teenager, right? <laughs> so uh, dressed, showered, and have some decent clothes on at 4 o'clock. You got that? He's like, what, 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 what are we doing, Dad? I'm like, dressed, showered, clothes, 4 o'clock. You got that? He's like, uh, okay. And so he keeps, it just drove him crazy. Um, anybody else like surprises drive you crazy? Yeah, me too. Uh, so <laughs> it just like, it drove him crazy. And I'm like, trust me, just trust me. Like, you're gonna like this, just trust me. So four o'clock, I pull up and get him, and we, we like threw him off course, and he thought we were doing something totally different. I'd, I'd uh, got him his first hunting rifle. And so we got to go out and have some great guy time out in the desert shooting things, because that's what, I mean, come on, like. But as Christians, we have a hard time with obedience first. We have a hard time with trusting God in the midst of a situation. But the call is to trust him and follow him into situations that may feel uncomfortable, that may feel awkward. Then, Lord, <laughs> and so here's Peter's reply. I love Peter. He's just like, he just says it, right? Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Like, the whole, uh, let's just do a bath then, you know? 
Peter's like, I'm in. If this is what it takes to have part in you, I'm in. I love Peter. And Jesus is like, whoa, whoa. Like, calm down. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet, and their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. Side glance over at Judas. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not every one of you was clean. Now, it's interesting here because this word washed has the same root as baptism. And here's, here's the big idea behind this. As Jesus calls his disciples, I mean, Peter, Peter was the first one to identify Jesus as Messiah, right? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Peter. I'm going to give you a nickname, Rocky. You're going to do great things. These guys had trusted in Jesus. And the, and the deeper idea here is you, you need to trust, put your faith and trust in Jesus for the salvation of your sins. But after that, guess what? In life, your feet still get dirty. Your feet still get dirty. Oh, you're part of the family. But they would walk around on these hot, dusty roads in, in Birkenstocks. And your feet would just get filthy, right? And so when it came to foot washing, actually, this was something customary. In fact, it was an insult if, if a guest would come into a home and they wouldn't wash their, their feet or a servant wouldn't do that. You, you see that in uh, another one of the Gospels where Jesus enters a house and the Pharisee doesn't wash his feet or have anyone to do that. And so he's saying, hey, in this world, we get dirty, our feet get dirty. And there's an ongoing cleansing when we come to our Savior. John says it this way later in a, in a letter he writes. The author John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That the finished work is done at the cross. Yet there's an ongoing confession that brings a renewal, that brings an intimacy with God. And I think it brings an incredible appreciation of the fact that he actually loved me. He saved me in spite of the fact that he knew I was going to struggle with this years down the road. And it's that act of coming to God again and going, God, I blew it again. I need to get back on track again. It makes you realize how great the grace of God is. And then it's out of a response to that forgiveness and that mercy and that grace that's been there all along that we live back unto him, our lives as an offering. Kind of like Mary's, we looked at last week, right? Or a couple weeks ago. We looked at Mary and we looked at true worship and it's giving your life as an offering to God. It reminds us, repentance reminds us of our ongoing need for a savior. But there's something deeper here too because this is a symbol of the cleansing that Jesus will do in a profound way on the cross. It says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. They didn't at this point. They wouldn't at this point. But he says, I, I, I've done something here. Do you understand and it brings us back to what, to how John starts this chapter. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. 
Elsewhere, Jesus will say, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for a friend. He loved them. There was a famous theologian of the last century. His name is Karl Barth. And uh, he wrote all kinds of stuff and was very influential. But towards the end of his life, uh, somebody asked him, what is the most profound truth in all your studies of the scripture that you found? And he looks back, and I think as as he aged, his faith grew more simple, which there's a lesson in that. And he looked at them, and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How many of you have sung that song? He says, you want to know what's the most profound? Jesus loved even me. He knew me, and he loved me. And the choice is, will you accept the love? Will you accept? Will you accept the cleansing that he offers, that it's a free gift, that he loved you? He loved you. He wanted you. He came and gave his life for you. And see, this is where pride in our lives can keep us from accepting the free gift of Jesus because we think, no, I, I'm going to earn it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be good. I'm going to tip the scales in my favor. I, I think I've done pretty good. I'm a good person. All, all of this kind of talk. And the, and the heart of the gospel is, no, he saw you in the midst of your sin and loved you and came to rescue you and pull you out of it. And yes, that transforms our life and we live back out of gratitude for him. But it starts with what he did first. Without, we didn't earn it in any way. That's why Paul says the gospel is a stumbling block. He says it's foolishness to those who are perishing. Because pride says, no, I've got to do something. I've got to earn it. And that stands at odds with the gospel. Verse 13 says this, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Here we get to the object lesson. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now you that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And there's, there's something about pride that the way it works itself out in our life is when we refuse to humble ourselves, when we refuse to serve others, in a sense, you would never say this with your mouth, but your life, in a sense, says, I'm greater than Jesus. The one who came, greater love has no man than this, giving up his life for a friend. You know, giving your life isn't just death. It's living for. It's living for the benefit of another person. And, and something about this whole picture is Jesus says, hey, as I've done here, I, I'm calling you to do. Washing feet. Washing feet. It's, it's kind of mundane. I mean, feet, they're just feet. We all, most of us have them, right? They're, they're pretty useful. I broke my ankle a couple of years ago and rec- recognized how useful they are when you can't use one for a while. But they're kind of normal. Kind of a little stinky sometimes. 
And we all wash our feet, right? All the time. We don't really even think about it. It's mundane. It's also very, very personal. And see, I think there's something about service and worship when it comes to living our lives as worship, our spiritual act of worship, which, which is defined as living your life for God. Not just when we sing songs, that's a beautiful part, but it's living your life on a daily basis to his glory, living it for him. And you know that often happens in the mundane and the personal, in the day-to-day life, in the non-flashy things. It's just giving of your life over and over and over again. I think that's what's at the heart of this message of washing feet. It's cooking another meal. It's changing another diaper. (laughs) Some of you are in that season right now. I remember that season. Um, It's cleaning another toilet with joy and gratitude in your heart for Jesus as an act of love towards him and towards those he's placed in your life. It's getting up and doing what you do at work to his glory and for the service of others. It's those moments that nobody else sees where you make a choice in your heart, I'm not too, too proud to do this thing. I'm not too good to pick up trash in the parking lot. I'm not too good to do what seemingly is beneath me. And I do it for Jesus because of what he's done. You know, I was talking to one of our pastors, John, about this uh, yesterday, and he made this interesting comment. He, he said, I, almost every foot washing I've seen, like literal foot washing, has been on a stage. That's interesting. Because not that that's, that's wrong, but I'll tell you what, uh, what can happen is even acts of humility can be something that feed into our pride if we're not careful, right? It's, it's in the times where we're not on stage. It's in the times when nobody else sees in the mundane day-to-day of life where this is walked out in our relationships to the people closest to us that are sometimes the hardest to love. I remember my grandfather. My grandma... Um, had Alzheimer's, and later in her life, it started to really progress, and the last 10, 15 years of her life, uh, she really struggled with that, and uh, if you have loved ones in that situation, you know, like, they ask the same question five times in five minutes, right? And so she would always, like, look at my little girl, and she's like, who, who are you? And we'd be like, that's Sarah, you know, who are you? And then you'd, you'd kind of repeat it, and I remember my grandpa, because he, he, uh, he was kind of a gruff guy earlier in his life, I remember as a young child almost being a little scared of him. But man, he aged like a fine wine, and we think God got a hold of his heart early, even though right before his death, um, I was able to pray with him to receive Jesus, which was amazing. But we think God was working on him a lot before then because just the love and devotion he showed to his wife was amazing. That in the midst of that struggle, you know, there's a few times you could see like the impatience kind of it, but man, he would like... She would ask the same question for the fifth time, and he'd just kind of smile and pat her on the knee. Didn't put her down. Didn't shame her. And he loved her and served her to the very end of her life. I have this picture of him um, on, on her deathbed, just like holding her. Beautiful. 
That's where this is walked out. Day in and day out. Now, Jesus gives us, and John in here illustrates to us the opposite of this. He gives us a choice. You can either live your life out of gratitude and love and service, or you can hang on to your pride and your agenda and try to dictate to God how things are going to go and end up with only regret. He goes on in verse 18. He says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. He quotes this psalm. It was all the way back when somebody betrayed a friend, betrayed David. And we see in there a messianic prophecy. He says in verse 19, I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. I am who I am. Again, Exodus 3, I am. <laughs> the claims of Jesus over and over, God in the flesh. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And there's an amazing study in there, and we don't have time to do it today. Verse 21, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And his disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which one of them he meant. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John. And some scholars think John like, was just so in awe because he was one of the sons of thunder who wanted to call down fire on this like, Samaritan village. Just a while before this, at the end of his life, he's known as the apostle of love. There was a great transformation in his heart and his life. And so some think that he gave himself this name in this gospel. Um, he was probably Jesus' second cousin, very likely. Probably the youngest of the disciples, maybe just still a teenage kid. And Jesus had like, almost like kid brother. Jesus had a special spot in his heart for John. And I think John just is overwhelmed the fact that his Savior actually loved him. He loved him. And so John says, John, they would recline around a table, lean on their left arms. This was customary. Slaves sat or stood. Free people reclined and ate. And as they reclined, John whispers over to Jesus and asked him, who is it? Simon Peter motioned to, to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Now, we don't know if this was only information that John heard and then later relayed to the others. But he says, then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Pay attention to this. This is interesting. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. And here's what I find so interesting about Judas in this account. John highlights this, and he's a brilliant author. He highlights it was night. Light and darkness, huge themes all the way throughout. In fact, John 3, he says, what? 
John 3, right after the famous John 3.16, he said, but people chose darkness instead of light. They preferred the darkness because their deeds were evil. Judas refused to come into the light. He'd been around the light now for years, and yet he refused to allow the light to penetrate his heart. He, hang on, he hung on to his, his own selfish agenda. He hung on to his own pride. Remember back in verse 2, it doesn't start here. Satan, as we see this interesting scripture, Satan says, entered him, takes control of him. The darkness takes control of him. It doesn't start here. Back in verse 2, we see the, the devil had already prompted Jesus, had already whispered this suggestion, and it gained a foothold in, in Judas's mind, in his imagination. And that's where it starts. Satan whispers in our ear. He tries to throw us off course, which is why Paul says, I want you to take every thought captive. Pay attention to your heart. Pay attention to your thought life. Pay attention because that's where it starts. And it started even earlier than that. We see that Judas would, would t- help himself to the money that he was called to take care of. And, and, and you had this unrepented sin and compromise that he kind of allowed and it's like Satan had a foothold. See, it doesn't start with just saying, I'm going to walk away from my faith. I'm going to walk away from Jesus. It starts much sooner in most people's hearts. It starts in a thought. It starts in, in compromise. I'm watching this, uh, or we watched, I watched this uh, true gr- crime drama with my wife um, last weekend. It was kind of interesting. She loves those. And Sometimes I get drugged into watching them. And since I was sleeping, trying to take a nap, I got caught up in it, right? Didn't get my nap, but it was really fascinating. It was like this strange little cult um, where this guy thought he was a prophet and this woman gets sucked into it. Actually, it was just in the news a few years ago. I'd forgotten about it till we watched this. And she ends up, they end up killing her husband and her two kids because of the deception. And you're like, how does that happen? It doesn't start there. It doesn't start with walking away from Jesus. It starts when Judas continually ignored the words of Jesus and continually pressed down the conviction enough times in his heart that Satan got a foothold. I'm going to invite Winston to come up for a moment. We're not going to close in a song. We're going to do something a little differently. See, the next three chapters of this book have just some incredible promises in them. And Judas leaves. He walks out into the darkness in this poetic way of saying he chooses the darkness instead of the light. And he misses all of it. He leaves. He doesn't get to hear these next four chapters of incredible promises that Jesus has. And he did it all for 30 pieces of silver. He did it all because Jesus wasn't living up to his agenda and he was going to get something out of this deal. He was sick of getting nothing and Jesus wasn't going his way. And once he realized, I mean, you see, even he didn't think it would go where it went, but that's where it went when he betrayed Jesus. Once he realized that Jesus was condemned to death, he sees with remorse, he takes the money and he throws it down. He doesn't even want it anymore. The thing that his heart was fixated on all of a sudden has no value to him and he dies full of regret. 
His story ends in tragedy. You know it. He dies without receiving the forgiveness of his Savior. He paints a stark contrast to pride and personal agenda. Peter's going to stumble. Peter's going to fall. Peter's going to deny his Savior. But you see where his heart's at. Very different thing with Judas. So as we think of this chapter, I just want everybody, if you would right now, here's how we're going to close. I'm just going to ask you a few questions for you to ponder. If you would, just bow your head, close your eyes. And just spend a moment asking God about these or or seeing what God brings to mind as I close. Is there an area where you're being called to, to just faithfully serve today where you'd prefer not to? Where maybe your pride's getting in the way? Where you need to come back and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this again and again out of an act of love for you, Jesus, and for these people in my life. Is there an area you need to deal with your heart and your attitude in that area? What are you holding on to out of pride that you need to let go of? I think the lesson of Judah and his, Judas and his regret is, and you don't want to miss out on what God has for you. Where are you allowing the enemy a foothold in your life? Is there an area where, where you know this, this thing is just allowing the enemy a foothold? Would you pray right now and just take, commit to Jesus that you're going you're gonna to deal with that? You're going to bring that into the light. You're going to let somebody else in to pray with you on, on what you're going through. And the most important question you can answer in all of your life, have, have you allowed Jesus, have you accepted his offer to, to wash you, to cleanse you, to give you new life? Have you placed your faith and trust in what he did for you when when he died and rose again? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Have you accepted the finished work that he completed on the cross? Coming to him and saying, okay, God, wash me, cleanse me. Jesus, I accept what you did for me. You can do that right now. Just ask him. Tell him, I know I can't make it to God on my own. I want to accept the free gift of salvation in life and trust. I place my trust fully in you. Forgive me. I want to be part of your family. I want to turn away from my sin and live my life for you. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, I pray for each one here. Lord, everyone in different places, different struggles, different temptations, But pride is something that everyone deals with. Lord, we humble ourselves under your mighty hand and know the life and experience the life that you offer. Would that flow out of us then to those around us in the way we serve day in, day out? Lord, we love you. We pray these things in your name. In the name of Jesus, amen.